have no mental health resources. And that's got to change in the public school systems or in any school system. We need the schools adequately staffed to help our kids with their mental health. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 110, The Best We Can Be, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Christy Hugsad, author of BU, Only Better, real-life self-care for young adults and everyone else, published by New World Library. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. I don't really know what it was like for my mom and dad to raise a family, try to keep their kids entertained, happy, and healthy with all the supplies it takes to provide shelter, education, and some type of security. As hard as they worked, and I do know they worked hard, I know we still ended up being parents ourselves, each with childhood traumas and fears to pick through, tripwires and triggers that have affected the way we each made our way forward into adulthood. I can easily imagine that this is a story that's repeated over and again, and for all my sweat, blood, and tears, I am sure that I'm making mistakes right now that my children will have to work through. So if our parents were doing their level best, and their parents did their level best, and we are doing our level best, what else can we do to help our young people gain firm footing as they move forward into this messy world, much messier than the one we came from, and try to piece together an adult life filled with hope, happiness, stability, peace, Peace and success. This is where the work of my guest, Christy Hugsat, comes in with some answers in the form of her new book, Be You Only Better Real Life Self Care for Young Adults and Everyone Else. I'll be 47 years old this year, and while this book may be targeted to young adults, I found myself consuming it with a shocking excitement. In this new book, Christy Hugsat offers a holistic approach to prepare young people for the world they're about to enter offering useful, practical information and real-world scenarios related to the subjects of diet, sleep, money, time, mental health, exercise, gratitude, and mindfulness. It all added up to one thing, an important thing, that I find sorely lacking in the world today, and that is hope. In our visit, I learned that Christy is full of hope, but it has been hard won. Early in our conversation, you will discover what I discovered in reading her book, that it has been in journeying through great personal loss and deep grief that she has brought forth a message of self-betterment and healing. Even as I approach 50 years on this earth, I find that I need to encounter teachers like Christy. She reminds me of the teachers and mentors that touched my life as a young person and how their lessons are durable to this day. While this particular work may be for young adults, I've found that I fall into the category of everyone else, and perhaps you will discover this as well. I left our conversation feeling refreshed and even more motivated to offer my children the best version of me, a self that I am still crafting. Now, it's time to consider that you, like me, may still have some things to learn about living well. Then tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning, dreaming up the story I can hear, the way it's going, cause you're laughing in your sleep, on the path to your deliverance, in a holy ball of light, through your window, old news, bad news, fake news, Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. 
I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. So look, I, uh, I note that we're talking today primarily about your new book. Yes. Uh, which I just finished, actually, a couple of days ago. And I got to tell you, what a great book. I, was, I just got through telling my wife about 30 minutes before this started. I said, I'm going to go get set up and everything. And over as I read a book, I'm usually telling her about it, what's going on. As it, as it happens, I have a 17-year-old son who's graduating high school this year. But when I was reading the book, all I could think over and over again was, where was this at when I was 16 and 17 years old? I didn't know anything that I wrote. We had no tools. Zero. Oh, no. Us either. I mean, you Uh have like home ec or maybe like business math or something like that. But there was no... Well, and then I started to wonder, I mean, obviously these these problems or these these issues that teenagers deal with today, in some form or another, you know, when I look back at my life, I go, okay, I can see some comparable things. Not right. in the same form, but, you know, something like that. So the, the issues existed, we just weren't talking about them. All those issues were there. Yeah. But they were not addressed. No, I can tell you, I didn't talk to anybody about the, not even really my friends. I mean, those things were mostly internalized. It was just internal fears and worries and anxieties that you really had nowhere to place. Spent our whole lives just dealing with that privately. Yeah. And so I guess that was sort of part of your motivation, yeah, to write the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you got to start with our youth. If we're going to change, if we're going to make a dent in the suicide epidemic we've got to teach young people how to take care of themselves yeah i am uh i think i'd like to start off we're already in it but i'd like to just take a moment and ask you to introduce yourself if you don't mind to my listeners and then we'll jump right back in before we get too far down the road so my name is christy hugstad and i'm a grief recovery specialist i work with addicts in recovery i do grief counseling with them to kind of get to the core of why they started using. I also am an owner of a Pilates studio in Dana Point, California, where I live. And I've written six books. My focus and my main passion and mission is suicide prevention and education. Okay. So that was actually something that came at me sideways when I got your book. Uh, I was reading it and I, you know, the introduction and I, you know, when a lot of people read a book and they go, I'm just going to read the book. But I have the intention, obviously, as many people who have podcasts, you're going, well, I know I'm going to be talking to this person. So you want to know more about their life. And sometimes when I'm talking to somebody, I have to ask the question, why do you do what you do? What made you 
um, what what changed for you? What was that moment? But for you, it was clear. Yes, I had a life-changing trauma that changed my whole path of life. Eight years ago, uh, my husband died by suicide. He ran in front of a Metrolink train not too far from our house. And to add to the trauma of that situation, Bill's father was coming from Houston, Texas to, to visit us, and he was a passenger on the train that his son ran in front of. I just found that out today, that part. And I just, it it was like somebody sucked the wind out of my, out of my body when I went, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, you know, you think about all the things that are, that the, 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 the gravity of the situation and the event, and then you add that to it. And it's like this echo of grief that just starts to, it's got this thread, you know, that now obviously his father carries in probably a different way. Well, my husband, Bill, was an only child. And so his parents just thought the world of him. Mm. He was all the high school baseball star, football quarterback, basketball star, you know, tall. All the girls liked him. So he, he was always kind of this successful, entitled kid. And his parents just thought the world of him. So they... In all honesty, in the last few years, I have tried to find them because they're the only connection left that I have, husband. And so they kind of just stopped communicating with me. They didn't really, really, they didn't really accept the fact that their son had died by suicide, that it was his choice. They were making excuses and saying, well, you know what? He did need new glasses. Maybe he didn't see the train. Oh, I see. And so there was a certain point where I just let them believe what they wanted to believe. Um, They were in denial. And then I found out from a a distant cousin of Bill's that they actually had died four years ago, both of them. Oh, I'm so sorry. God, that's that's just another layer to that. that. Neither one of them really had any any reason to live. They just both kind of died of broken hearts. That is something I, I just, well, there, okay. So in the, you're in the, you're in the world of grief. I mean, that, that's your door right there, your husband. And then the story that you're just, that you're talking about right here. I mean, that's not a door that really just closes. Absolutely not. But what started happening as I was going through my grief journey is I got to a point where I couldn't take the depression and the stress anymore. I couldn't continue to live how I was living. I was so miserable. And I finally remember one morning waking up and say, okay, you have a choice right now. You can either continue to be a victim of what's happened, or you can figure out some kind of game plan to use what has happened, use your pain for growth, and think of how you can take this, turn it around, and maybe help somebody else not have to go through the pain that you're sitting with right now. So I made that decision. If I can help one person out there, give them a little ray of hope or give them some information that I didn't have, that is what I'm supposed to do with my tragedy. That's the lesson here. That's beautiful. And I, you know, you see that repeated 
in various forms throughout our history where something is transformed into something else. This this thing or a waste energy almost, you know, it's like, how can we harness that and transform this into something else? And that's exactly what I'm hearing you say. And I mean, I'm kind of, you probably see me smiling a little bit because I'm going, that's not in the exact same way, but it sort of was my path too to like an awakening type of experience where it was like, okay, I've got these broken things that go all the way back. You know, I can, I'm picking through all the little threads and the fibers trying to understand it. It's a mess. But what happens if I say, okay, I don't, I, yeah, broken, sure. But what can I do with all these pieces and how can I point that at something? Yeah, and that's a choice. You have that choice to make. And a lot of people, especially when it comes to the topic of suicide, it is so stigmatized. I find people don't want to talk about it. They don't want to say, my son, my daughter, my brother, my sibling died by suicide because they feel shame. And that's got to change. Um, I can't agree with you more. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to talk about it openly because I, for years now, I've had this podcast for a couple of years, and it's a subject that I have sort of walked around. I brought it up, but I always walk around the true gravity of it because it's exactly said. There's a stigma and a shame to it. Like I did something wrong. And uh, my daughter several years ago attempted suicide and she survived. But I never, I wouldn't bring it up. Do you know what I mean? Like I would find ways to avoid, even though I knew like it was so critical to a conversation to show that wound. But if if it was anything else, if I, if she had done anything else, I would have brought it up. Or if I, I'd throw myself on my own sword over and over again before I would bring that up. And I, and I would analyze that, go, why is there this feeling of i don't know the only word i mean is shame like it's a shameful feeling and it's the strangest thing is i don't feel ashamed of her you know and i don't feel like i can't i couldn't tell you on paper why there's shame there but it is it's stigmatized it's just societal it's very real and it's not coming from you or i it's society has not grown enough we're not educated and informed enough to realize that our mental health, we all have issues, and yeah. we will continue to. And our mental health should be just as important as our physical health. And that's not, we're not there yet. And the only way we're going to move forward with that is if we start talking openly and own it. So when I, you know, people, strangers will say, so, you know, are you married? Are you divorced? Are you single? And I'll say, oh, well, I'm single. Oh, well, are you, have you been married? And they, they, they want to know. Yeah. And so I own it and I say, well, um, I guess I was married, by, but you know, my husband, I'm a widow. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, what happened? Mm. So it's just out of curiosity, they need to know how he died. Yeah. And I'll say, well, he died by suicide. And the reaction is one of just shock. Oh, yeah, they don't know how to respond. They don't know what to say. And it's interesting that they suddenly they're very uncomfortable and they don't want to continue the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I get this. We, 
this comes up a lot, how to navigate death and suicide or grief or illness. And I, I found that even when my father died, you know, my father died of a, it was just a real tragedy. It was not peaceful. It was ugly. And it wasn't, it was a, a, a cascade of mystery illnesses all at once that just, it took him and it had, was related to some chemical agents. It was just not a good situation. And so now I've noticed when people ask me, oh, if they haven't talked to me in years, they're like, well, how's your mom and dad doing? And I'll say, well, dad passed away. And the ones that are willing to go the next step and say, oh, was he sick? If I tell them the truth, I can just see like, oh, gosh, I don't they don't want to hear that. They just want to hear that he, he got sick and died like everybody. And I just have learned that, you know, it's sad, but I just go, I'm just going to try to not have these conversations because I'm making them uncomfortable. Yes. And what's really happening is they are starting to think about their own mortality. Oh, death is real. Oh, death is going to happen to me. And it could and, be ugly. <laughs> right? I yeah, mean, so, so death itself is stigmatized and not a topic of conversation, like conversation that's easily discussed. But you, you throw something else in there like an unnatural death or suicide and then it's kind of off limits for conversation for a lot of people yeah and for that's sure got, that's got to change we all have mental health issues all of us you know and especially in this last year with the pandemic oh man. i have people reaching out and they'll say to me christy i don't know why i'm so depressed none of my friends or family have died of covid you know, I'm lucky I have my health. Uh, no one's died. And I need to explain to them that grief is not just about death. We are grieving now loss of connection. You know, we're isolated. We don't have that social connection. It was so important. Loss of trust. Loss of relationships. Yeah. Faith. You know, family. There's The list goes on and on. So I think it's important for people to realize that if you are sad right now and you are grieving during this pandemic, it's okay. It's normal. We all feel that way. Yeah, you're right. That is interesting. I've been thinking about that a lot, mostly privately. But the 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 grief is like you said, trust. And that's something I've, I've have spoken to my wife about it, but not really publicly with a lot of people. And it's that I have I am grieving my um the death of trust. And that's really a sad thing because I love people, but I, over this last year have felt something. And the only thing I can compare it to is, uh, I was married before and there was an affair. And I remember when I discovered it, how I can still remember the way it upended my world, my brain, like everything that I had faith in. I mean, my, my spirituality, my job, all these things that I had micro trusts in that one event rewired everything. And I looked at the whole world, like within a moment, I went, what else do I believe that isn't true? Right. right. It took years for me to like trust people again and like retune myself to actually let intimacy happen. And here I am again, uh, these last few weeks, I, I was like, what is this cloud that I'm feeling? What? And I was like, the only thing I can compare it to is that, like, I've lost, maybe not completely, 
but I'm having to learn again to trust people because I've seen so many. I think there's like a kindness that I expected, uh, a camaraderie that I had started to begin to believe in again and the goodness. And then I started to see all this chaos and people not taking care of each other. And I went, Oh my gosh, should I not be trusting my, my civilization? <laughs> I don't know. That's a big thing, but that's really what it feels like. Oh, it's very real. And I think what happens as we age and as we continue with life, we don't trust as people as easily as we used to. I used to trust everybody until they gave me reason not to. Yeah. Now there you go. I put up a wall until they they let me know that I can let it down. It's yeah. kind of the opposite way. So my yeah. circle of friends and people in my life is much smaller because of that. And I think that's okay. I think that's actually quite healthy. Okay. Well, I hope it is because that's kind of what's happened to me. I found myself just tying things off going, okay, these behaviors aren't trustworthy. They're dangerous. It's like, and that's the word I find myself thinking you're dangerous. That's dangerous. Um, I need to create a little distance on top of the existing distance. I feel that way when I go to the store where I live, especially it's very, especially this last year, there just hasn't been a lot of precaution, a lot of resistance to taking care of each other in that regard. And, um, when I go to the store, I find myself just leaving feeling just, just this, I don't know, like a yuck feeling. I don't really have a good intellectual word to apply to it. It's just very heavy feeling. And I go, man, I just feel like I can't trust the the people I live around to do the right thing. And that's a terrible feeling. It really is. Well, you know, I'm in Southern California, so it may be different here. But when I still, when I go to the grocery store, everybody's wearing masks. Oh, not here. Okay. (laughs) No, no here it's, it's, um, I mean, the truth of the matter is it's, it's been a real problem here from the beginning. I mean, I'm on the, the, I'm in the, uh, on the Gulf coast in Louisiana, about as far, almost as far south as you can get on the, uh, Western side of Louisiana, right on the Texas border. So we've got real, uh, real issues here. (laughs) I don't know. It's just a strange thing, but I mean, that's what happens, I guess, you know, I mean, and when you live in a place like that, it does, I don't know. I feel like it has changed me for sure. I can get back to it if I can, if I, but I want to see it. Like you said, I'm kind of waiting to be signaled. Absolutely. Trust is something that's earned. You you just aren't automatically granted that. So it's going to take some time. But I know the first several times when I went into a grocery store or anywhere in public, you had to wear a mask, right? And everybody's, the whole world seems so robotic. Like we were just eyes staring at each other, you mm-hmm. know, taking care of our, getting our groceries and then hurrying out of there. And there was so much tension. It really felt like we were, you know, a bunch of robots that were not making any kind of, yeah. there was no human interaction at all. You know, the only, the only time you get a vibe from somebody is when you were standing less than six feet away from them in the grocery line and yeah. somebody would turn around and give you a dirty look. But it was, you know, we were, everybody was scared. Yeah. Yeah. Here has been a, I mean, at first, maybe I, we, you know, like everybody, we were all shut down. And uh, when people first started coming out, it was just 
Like, it's the small things that you lose. And, and this gets back to grief and trust. And I know this is such a silly thing, but we live kind of out in the country. And there's one little gas station convenience store that we like to go to. And I know it's so small, but when I pick my son up from school, he likes to go there after school. So it's like a thing to go get a drink and a snack. And I think in my head, oh, I remember when I was little really liking those things and they're good memories. And so I want him to have that feeling of like, oh, I remember dad used to take me there when we were kids. I want him to have that. It's become like tainted because when we go there, it's now an environment of uh, I'm going to show you that I'm not going to be safe. Like that's kind of what the community is. It's like very like, I'm not, I am pu- purposely ignoring any precautions, you know, purposely not distancing. Uh, there's just nothing. It's as if it doesn't exist. And oh, so when wow. we go there, I feel like we're astronauts in spacesuits, you know, because wow. I'm like, okay, son, stay close to me. Make sure your mask, make sure your hands don't know. Don't get too close. Cause I'm just going, they're not, we're one of the few that's in there that's actually being taking precautions. So that thing that was positive is like a source of contention. And I think it's making, and I, I, boy, I'm really dumping it out on you. It's like, I'm analyzing my thought about it and I'm going, I'm building like a resentment. I can feel it happening like a, a distrust and a resentment, like convalescing inside of me. And I don't like that. Well, you're trying to relive your childhood happy memories through your son. <laughs> Probably. And the yeah. Time changed. Yeah. It's not you're right. It's not on Mayberry RFD anymore. Never no. in a whole world. Yeah. So maybe what would work better is if you find a different ritual with just you and your son and you take him down right. to the creek and fishing or whatever it is that the two of you would enjoy doing together. Exactly. And maybe Maybe put that whole store thing on hold. Yep, that's just going to not be, it can't be like what it was. Yeah, and it's sad. It's almost like you you think about these little encampments, like, oh, this is a special thing. You put your little personal flag in it, and nobody knows you stuck your flag in it. You know, so all these people have no idea. They're just stomping all over your holy ground. And I know that's a silly way to put it, but it's like. It was sacred to you. Right. (laughs) Fond memory of growing up. and. We really hang on to those things. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they're special to us. Well, it gets back into something, and it gets to your book, too. I was thinking this the whole time I was reading it. It's something I I always noticed, and I have this conversation a lot, where embarrassing memories or painful memories are so much stickier than good memories, I find. At least for me. And so as I was reading your book and thinking about being an adolescent and getting into that age, and I thought, man... I would have loved to have had a door like this to enter at that age because it al- it would have allowed me or given me permission to look at my mental health at an earlier age instead of being an adult when I finally started looking at it. I had never heard of mental health. <laughs> me either. <laughs> me either. What is mental health? We didn't have classes on it. No. Nobody. I don't even remember having a health class. And if. Right. I mean, no. maybe maybe we did and we learned about the different organs and muscles. That's and it. That's all we learned. Too. It was just strict information. But as far as emotional health, nothing. Right. Not in high school, not in college. Never. Yeah. It and was then, survival. Yes. 
very utility. And the world's just, I don't want to live like that. And I definitely don't want my kids to live like that. Um, on some, and on some level, I guess that's sort of what I felt like your book was. It was like a toolbox, you know, I was like, okay, this is, that could have been a four year course. I just kept thinking that. And I said that to my wife too. I said, this could have been a four year course that you, you do a, a part of this every year while you're in high school. Wouldn't that be amazing? Oh my gosh. It would have changed my life. Think of all the issues that our youth are going through. I wasn't cyberbullying. If somebody wanted to bully me, they had to call my landline at my house (laughs) and my dad would answer. (laughs) Right. You know, that's the only way that they could get to me when I was home. And that did happen. So I understand the bullying. But now on social media and all the likes and comparing themselves to their peers and making up this persona of being this popular, happy, you know, teen or young adult, it's so much pressure. And that's why they have to have tools. It's survival. To me, it's not optional. It's mandatory. I mean, the young adults and teens need tools. Have you been getting any feedback from young people that have read your book? Yes. Oh, good. Yes. I've, I've gotten lots of feedback, and most of it is I had no idea about any of this. Really? But the best, yeah, but the best feedback is, you know, a self-care tool like writing. So one chapter is writing it down, right? Yeah, writing one. it down. You can tell your son, you know what, if you would just write down how you're feeling and put your thoughts on paper it really helps you to have a place to put your anger and your emotions. Yeah. And it's very, okay, well, that probably would make sense to him. But he's going to say, how do I do that? How do I get started? Yeah. I don't have any idea. So the, the I'm also a, a, a credential teacher. So I know that you can't just tell a teen or a young adult to do something. You've got to tell them how. Mm-hmm. So after, this, after the chapter on the tools, I, I give you the science, brain science behind it. So it gives you reason, like this is going to change your brain. It's going to change your mood. It's going to change you. Yeah. Okay. Good motivation to do it. And then after the science, it's like, okay, now here's how to get started. Right? So if we're talking about writing it down, you don't have to buy a journal. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on a piece of scratch, uh, piece of scratch paper. You can do it on your notebook. Here are some questions to answer, and that will get you started journaling. Yeah. So now, now it's easy. But I know for me, I'm kind of black and white that way. If you're going to tell me to do something, then also tell me why. Longtime Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. On The Dawn Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings? enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts. Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Dawn Deacon podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. 
I hope you'll join me at the Dawn Deacon Podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. Yeah, it's like a prescription. That's one thing that I've lately in the last couple of years that's a word that's really helped me a lot. You know, I, I keep thinking about when you go to the doctor and you have an ailment, the doctor's not going to give you the medicine for my ailment. You know, he's going to prescribe something Now you might have something similar, right. you know, and it's going to, but it's going to be your medicine. And I keep thinking about that a lot. Like that's what we really, that's the approach we need to take instead of going, Hey, here's a one size fits all solution. Just go do it. It's fine. Don't worry about anything. No, I need to know like how, what are the side effects and you know, why is this for yes. me a little more loving approach instead of a hammer and then, you will, then you will take it with enthusiasm. And that's the same thing with reading this book. If you don't know why you're, you're engaging in these self care tools, you're not going to do it. But once I start telling you, Hey, did you know, that when you get out and you exercise, you get your heart rate up, you are changing, you are upping the endorphins in your brain. It's altering your brain so that your mood is elevated and you will become happier. And when you think about that, you think, well, you know what? I just did go for a run or I just worked out at the gym or whatever. And when I got home, I said to myself, I'm so glad I did that. But there's a real chemical change that goes on in your brain. That's why you feel better. So That's interesting. I was thinking about this part of your book. I actually I listened to your book uh, partly because I have an app that'll read it to me. And so I go walking every morning. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's honestly, and this is not an exaggeration, walking saved my life many times. And as I was walking uh, a few days ago and it was sunny and it was kind of cool outside and I was out in a park that I really love. And I was listening to the park about go the part that you were talking about, the effects of sunshine and fresh air and just getting out away from things. And I've had this theory about where I live for years. And I thought, you know, because we have a we're a huge petrochemical area. And so to find really beautiful places to go and escape, you really kind of have to find the nooks and crannies and travel a little bit to do that. And I've often thought that that just those existing, and I know, oh gosh, I'm a pariah for bringing this up because it's a huge boon to our economy. But I really do believe it affects our mental health here. We have the highest suicide rate in Louisiana in this parish. And I, I believe the environment has affected not just one generation, but many generations of people because we've become accustomed to seeing this sort of, I guess, the squashing of nature, the nature as a thing to be used and not really appreciated. And so it kind of creates this starvation, I think, in us. Because when I do go walk, it has helped me get through depression many times. And just being out in nature. And I don't know, I was listening to you talk about that and the chemicals. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is true. This is 100% true because I can see it within myself. This is a tested thing in my own life. Well, when you think about the environment, I mean, I'm in sunny California. And it's if it's cloudy, I'm depressed because it's never cloudy. But <laughs> I grew up in Minnesota where it's the weather's terrible. And I remember being so depressed because it, there was three feet of snow, you know, blizzards. And I remember actually not getting out of bed for three days wow. because the weather was 
depressing. And look at countries like Norway, you know, where it's dark for a few months every year. There's a lot of depression going on during that time because the sunlight and the fresh air and the beautiful, you know, our beautiful surroundings really do help change our brain chemistry. Yeah. I kept having this visual as I was listening to your book because I'm also I'm also reading another book at, along with this one. I kind of jump back and forth and it's about being about empathy and being a really kind of a hypersensitive empath and I kept getting this visual of like all these little discs that kind of float around my energy body so to speak, right? And each one of those little discs is like plugged into my center. And one is finances and one is sex and one is love and one is, and you were talking about that in your book too, like all of these, that's really what your book is. It's all these dimensions. And I kept thinking like you can have all like six of these spheres can be connected to the sun and positivity. But if you have this one sphere that is getting like something, it's just not healthy, it's negative, it's diminished it's still connected to your center. And so regardless of what you're doing, you still have this one outlet, right? That's like plugging into you and feeding you something that's not good for you. Well, if you think about it, like I talk about the different types of self-care, physical, emotional, social, mental, and financial. Okay. And people always say, I love that you added the financial aspect because you, you don't think of young adults as having financial problems. And I'm thinking, Oh, Oh, right. The, I remember when I first discovered credit cards, I thought that was free money. I got myself in debt so fast. Oh, me too. I was probably 19 years old, and it was not pretty. But it, let's say you're, you're taking care of yourself in, in four of those five self-care areas, and the fifth one, the financial type, you're neglecting. What happens? You're in debt. You have stress, you have anxiety, which can lead to depression. That really is going to affect your mental health. So if you neglect any of those five areas, you're still going to experience anxiety that could lead to depression because you're not taking care of yourself as a whole being. God, that's so true. I I get that. And that is something else that another aspect of your book that I thought was fantastic because, see, I mean, I have to, again, look at my own life, right? And, and I imagine there are a lot of people like me. I did not come from a financially healthy family. And what I mean by healthy isn't that we did without. There were times when we did. But once we finally did start to get means, uh, we were just sort of catching up, you know, to what I looked out as a child and thought other people had or their comfort. We finally kind of get to that stage, and it was just not stable, and it was never taught to us. I mean, we, it was never talked about. If mom and dad talked about money, it was fighting, and I picked it up. I can still remember. It's funny what those things do. They get like little seeds get planted in your head. And when your parents fight, I, I, I'm jumping all over, but it's like things that we say in front of small children. I always warn my adult friends with small children this. Be careful. They are listening to things that you don't think they're listening to. You don't think they hear you fighting about a missing check, for instance. Right? Because they're too little to understand. But I can remember being afraid of of checkbooks as I got older in a bank account. I was like, I don't want one of those. You might lose it. Right. Because there was contention and bickering associated with those words. 
And as I got older, I was like, I have anxiety about these things. Like there was a long time where I wouldn't even put my paychecks in the bank. And I had to analyze it and go, why am I terrified of these basic things? And you're going to have to monitor your finances your entire life. Exactly. But nobody's telling you that as a kid, unless you have a a source. But your book is operating in that capacity, I guess, is my, my ultimate point. How many kids are like me, though, that their mom and dad aren't teaching them nothing but debt and Most poor things. finances. Or on the other hand, I've got a lot of wealthy families mm. in, in the area and the kids are so entitled and they're lazy and they don't, they feel like they don't have to work for it because their parents will take care of them. So there's that opposite. Extreme yeah, interesting. Too. Yeah, you're right. It's like, it creates a different type of God. So <laughs> that's so fascinating, isn't it? But I think the healthiest way is like well, I grew up on a dairy farm in southern Minnesota. We had nothing. I mean, we raised cows, chickens, pig. I didn't know we didn't have money because yeah. we always had food and nobody ever talked about it. And I just thought that's how everybody lived. You know, I I've, I've may have talked about this before, but and it might just be me. I don't know, but I can't imagine that there weren't that other kids aren't weren't like this. But it was those, those embarrassing moments were like glue for me. And I remember as a kid, in my mom and dad stopped at garage sales most of the time for my clothes. I thought everybody did that. Right. I didn't know any better. You know, there wasn't a way to, for me to gauge. I just, you, you, yeah. So I was at school. I can remember it was the second grade. I, can, I was in the lunch line and I had this cowboy shirt that had red roses on it, had pearl snap buttons, and I loved it thought it was so pretty when that was even the thought I it was a pretty shirt and I was like oh I'm so proud of this shirt well my mom had got it at a garage sale and so we were standing in the lunch line and a little girl in front of me said I like your shirt and I was so proud and I said thanks my mom got it at a garage sale <laughs> and the girl behind me said whispered to somebody and said "Ooh, they're poor he shops their shop at garage sales and I remember like that to this day, it was, it's in my head and I was an adult. I was at a cowboy store for a, for something. And I saw a Pearl snap shirt. I was probably 30 years old. And that memory hit me like a, just a ton of bricks. And I bought that shirt. And for years, that's all I wore was Pearl snaps. And I told my wife, I said, do you know, I have like trauma associated with a piece of apparel. Now that's ridiculous. But like in my brain, it was a sign of like wealth to like own a pearl snap cowboy and isn't that ridiculous but that's how little things we're gonna say that that you just left the store because you were so traumatized by the memory oh. so i'm actually proud of you for purchasing it yeah and you're, you're kind of <laughs> your trauma. yeah well good. it's like you were saying turning something into something else yeah. but i had to like lean into it and go this small yeah. thing that to everybody else is nothing is huge to me because it was a day like as a child something gets flipped in your head. Well, and what what parents and teachers and and young adults and teens we all need to realize that the teen brain is not fully developed till for girls maybe twenty three years old for wow. guys twenty five somewhere in your twenties. So when you're a young kid, you do not have the capacity to analyze all this trauma that's going on. You don't have the skill set or the brain power to, you know, assimilate all that. That's why they need tools. 
And it's because their brain is still developing. That's why they make bad decisions. That's why they act impulsively. And then, you know, eventually as you have more life experience and you get older, you start to stop, maybe monitor the consequences before you make that decision to do something impulsive. So I think people need to understand you got to you got to cut these young kids some slack. Yeah. Give them a break and look at what they're facing. I mean, I think about what we've all faced, as you said, the pandemic this year and other things that have went on in our society. And, you know, you look at the gravity, the way it feels on you as an adult who's had a lot of years and been through a lot of heavy things. And you've navigated them somewhat successfully if you're still here. Right. Okay, so you've done something. And you look at these kids and you go, wow, they're looking at the same stuff. And, and they're, they're not on full brain power and they have no tools. I don't know how they do it. And that's the problem. A lot of them aren't. A lot of them are giving up. You know, a lot of them are turning to drugs and alcohol and they're looking at ways to numb that pain because they don't know any other way to cope. And they're in so much emotional pain. Yeah, and how do you just tell someone just to carry it, right? I mean, that's a hard... I, I, I have this conversation with lots of adults that I find, and it's hard. I find that they're just not mm, tender enough. And I'm like, you know, being hard is telling somebody to push through. Yeah, sure, I can, yeah, I can push through. I've figured out ways to push through, but... Not everybody has the same capacity to do that. And so you tell someone to push through, you might be pushing them right into the worst possible scenario based on their capacity. Let me give you an example of that. When about a year before my husband's death, he started to show signs of depression. He really exhibited almost every warning sign and risk factor of suicide that exists. You know, the feelings of hopelessness, the withdrawal, the isolation. He talked about not wanting to be here. Everything mm. we did was an opportunity to take his own life. You know, he would he was sleeping a lot. He wasn't eating. I mean, he'd had he had a, a prior attempt where he took pills and left me a note. I mean, it the red flags were everywhere. But as his wife and we had a successful gym out here and a nice home overlooking the ocean, you know, we had a really nice life yeah. on the outside. Right, right, but yeah. inside, my husband was spiraling out of control and falling into a deep, dark place. So I will now admit that I must have bought into the stigma of mental illness, too, because my whole goal was to fix him. Oh. I, wanted, I wanted to find that psychologist, that psychiatrist, that church counselor, that um, shaman, the magic pill that would bring my husband back to the man that he was when I married him. I was fixated on that. We went to appointment after appointment. He had a bag full of different prescription drugs to ease his anxiety and depression. And so now in hindsight, I wish I would done this. I wish I had sat down next to him on the bed and put my arm around him and held his hand and said, you know what, Bill? I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. I've got your back. We're going to get through this together. And I just want you to know that I love you. And I am going to work work with you 
to get this solved and reassured him that he wasn't alone. Because when I think about how somebody must feel that doesn't want to live anymore because the pain is too intense, I can't imagine what that feels like. And I think what we need as human beings, and especially young adults and teens, is we need the adults to say, we've got your back. What can I do? Let's talk. We're in this together. And not enough of us are doing that. Yeah. Instead, we're, instead, we're saying, you know what? You, you, you just need more sleep. Go to bed. You'll be fine tomorrow. Or, or suck it up. I had a lot worse when I was your age. Yeah, you know, that's the war. Right, right. And that's the worst thing because then we're letting our young people know that how you're feeling is not okay. And that's the worst possible thing we can do. Yeah. I, I mean, even with my daughter, I I knew there was trouble. It had been trouble kind of, as you said, that with your husband. It was like the signs were there, but I really didn't know. There were signs I didn't know what they were. If that right. makes any sense, I, something was coming. I just wasn't sure that it was that. I didn't even consider that actually. Mm-hmm. And but but in hindsight, you can go back and go, oh gosh, all this is there, you know. And if you're not, it's kind of like looking at the weather. I mean, if you don't know anything about the weather, some people can walk outside and go, that's a stratus cloud, cumulus cloud, and I see the squall line. They they can interpret the signs and tell you what's coming. But to somebody else, I go outside and they're like. Okay, well, there's some clouds out there. I don't know what I'm looking at. And I think I was in that mode where I was like, I just don't, I couldn't put it together. And I was ashamed, honestly. I think that gets them back into shame. I felt like I had failed. Right. Me too. You too. I felt guilty. I felt guilty. I thought it was my fault that he died because I didn't get him that right doctor. I didn't get him the right care. And it was all my fault. So the Mm. guilt was my number one emotion. Yeah. You know, and that's the other thing I you you were touching on that and it kind of gets even back to that idea of a prescription that what works for one person isn't necessarily going to work for everybody. I went through a depression gosh, I don't know how many years ago, 7 years ago maybe. And it was I I I thought I was fine. I hadn't had a, depre- a feeling of depression since I was 20 years old, which was when the real shift happened for me. So it was an alien thing, but it came from medicine. I was I had had a surgery, and they had put me on painkillers. And I, the doctor said, "Here's what you need to take." He gave it to me, and I took what I was supposed to take every day. And I guess it was just too much for me. And I didn't put it together until almost, it was almost too late. I mean, I was sliding down in a matter of weeks, just further and further into a hole. And I was keeping this digital journal and I don't think, and I don't write in that anymore, but I kept it just because I wanted a picture of what my mind looked like. Cause I finally went, I luckily went and got help, got off the medication and within a couple of months, it was like day by day, I my mind came back. But I was at that point where I felt like, you know, I was thinking about the end, you know, like, oh, it'd be better if I wasn't around, you know. So I don't know. It was just difficult. And keeping that little journal made a huge difference. I mean, looking back on it, I go, wow, my mind was all over the place. And so I can actually kind of relate to what people People are feeling, I guess, whenever they're in that hole, it does feel pretty hopeless. It was like there was this cloud in front of my eyes. I couldn't conceive that it was the medication at all. Well, of course not. You have no idea what's happening. 
And then you're too ashamed to reach out or get help because you don't know what's going on. And I will say that my husband, Bill, was taking benzos at night for insomnia. And he stopped taking them and didn't wean himself off. And I think that was a huge contributing factor to his suicide. I believe it. Are it can be deadly. Yeah, because you, you it'll it'll put you in a position where you're really if you were already weak, it's just weakening you further. You're resolved to keep trying. I kept thinking the only way I could describe it was like it was like being in a hole and sliding down further the more you tried to climb out. I was like it's just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I was and even the people that this is the thing that is so insidious about depression. I think. Even the people that love you the most can tell you that they love you, everything. And it was like none of it mattered. And that's terrifying to think. Like today, sitting here, I could tell you, if I even had a sad thought, I can think about any positive thing in my life and go, that's enough reason to just keep going in, in any aspect. But in right. that moment of depression, none of that mattered. It didn't matter what anybody said. Now you're almost to a point where you're numb, right? And no, whatever positive feedback you get from anybody just does not resonate. Yeah. And that, that's when things get really scary. And it's really hard for somebody with a healthy brain to understand how dark that must be. Yeah. It's sad and it's, it makes me sad. And it, does, it makes me even sadder when I see... Um, diminished empathy towards it, but that's but you, I will say that's the show is about the good, and I will say that when I discover works like yours, it gives me hope. It renews that that hope in people because I go, okay, there are people like you out there who go like right into it and take out from those dark places and, and a light and try to give it to people. Well. My main objective is I would like to get – I have another book, too, that I wrote a year ago called Beneath the Surface, A Teen's Guide to Reaching Out When You or Your Friend is in Crisis. And that covers all the different issues that our teens are facing today. Really? And Yeah, and, and that – and then the self-care. I want to get those books into our schools because it needs to be a resource. I go to schools you know, in Southern California – and I'll speak to the students in maybe the eighth or ninth grade health classes, and the teachers just say, "I could have. I, I, these are topics I cannot talk about with my students. I'm so glad that you are available." And what's what's really frightening is that you know I, I tell my story, and then as I tell my story, I've already taught the risk factors and warning signs of suicide, right? And then as I tell my story, I make the students write down the risk factors. And the warning signs as they come up in the story. So they're actually learning something. Yeah. And at the end, I ask them, you know, okay, what risk factors came up? What warning signs? And they raise their hands and we're sharing and everybody's interacting. And then I tell them, if you have a friend that has said, uh, you know what, Jamie, I don't want to live anymore. Please don't tell anybody. That is not the time. Do not let your friends swear you to secrecy. Right. That is the time to tell an adult you trust. And so at the end, it could be a teacher. It could be your parents. It could be a friend's parent, a counselor, an administrator, a church counselor. Whoever that adult is that you trust, you need to tell them. It's a matter of life or death. 
And at the end of one school uh, talk, I probably had 20 kids lined up out the door waiting to talk to me because there was nobody else oh in there. Oh, my God. I mean, that breaks my heart. It really does. I'm, I don't mean to get emotional, but that just is the and truth. And that's school after school. I could never let my parents know how I feel. They wouldn't understand. They would just make fun of me. They would just tell me to suck it up. You know, my siblings are doing great. You know, I'm kind of like the black sheep of the family. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. So most of these kids really do, they really do want somebody to reach out to. It's just that they're afraid. I wonder what it is. What is, uh, listening to you say that, I mean, they see you talking about this stuff openly and you know you're you're showing your wounds you know what i mean i mean and i know that i feel like that's such a key part of i guess it's like bearing your breast to some degree it's like saying okay look i'm i'm putting my wings open i'm showing you my heart you can trust me i don't have anything to hide right so sometimes showing our wounds can be like that and it's an invitation to other people but I wonder, you know, I mean, they, they see that in you, but I just wonder what is it, what does it take, and why are they not seeing it in other people? I mean, is there nobody in their life? I mean, yes, that could be a factor, but is there, and and that part that people just don't have the capacity or they don't have the, the knowledge to go, oh, in this moment, I need to be, I need to show this person my vulnerability because they're vulnerable so I can connect with them. I mean, is that not what we're, is that what we're not doing? I think the students don't trust the teachers because they're an authority figure and they're going to get in trouble if in their heads, if they tell their teacher, I'm struggling with depression, I've started using drugs, I'm, you know, I'm smoking pot at night so I can sleep, you know, whatever, that is an authority figure and they're going to get in trouble. Yeah. Or that teacher's going to call their parents. And their parents, there's going to be consequences for that. Even the school counselors, usually there's one or two, you know, for three, four hundred kids. Yeah. And not fully equipped to handle all these different mental health issues. As a matter of fact, some of them are just academic counselors. I was about to say here, that is something I've talked with a lot of teacher friends. They said, we don't really have a... A counseling when you the way we're using it out here in the world i need counseling or or mental health help they're not thinking of that that way it's more like you know getting your grades up getting your schedule changed uh getting you into a college you know getting you what you need it isn't like as you said and that's a kid goes in and they're they're presented presenting a counselor with that they're just like you said they're not trained or equipped to really go into some of these places no i have a niece who's a a middle school counselor, and she only does academic things, helping them fill out their applications to get into the schools and, and you know, get recommendations and do what you need to do. And so they have no, no mental health resources. And that's got to change in the public school systems or in any school system. We need the, the schools adequately staffed to help our kids with their mental health. You know, and that's why I thought if I can get my books in there, at least in a health class or whatever, they have a resource. Yeah. You know, they they have something that they can use as a lesson plan and they don't have to go 
out and figure it out themselves. I've done it for them. Have you, I mean, it sounds like you, you're already having that kind of conversation with some of the schools, right? I mean, it seems like you're, you're, you're kind of pushing for that. Yeah. I'm doing that locally. Yeah. And, but here's what's happening here. I don't know what it's like out where you are, but there's, there's make the schools are making lots of cuts and the health departments and the health teachers are getting laid off. Oh, Gosh, you know, and so those wow. are the classes that I would visit because it's mental health. Yeah, it's an entry point to this. Yeah. They're cutting it out. So, um, yeah, it's it's a lot tougher to get in the door than I thought. Yeah. And I mean, I have a friend who started a program that was uh, helping teens deal with navigate social media and the online world. I mean, just in from not maybe just a mental health aspect, but like just to be safe. Right. Uh, from predators and just really just all kinds of behaviors that are toxic to teenagers or unhealthy for them. And, you know, even that program, I mean, it really did struggle. It found its footing, but at a certain level, it just sort of caps out. You're going, okay, there's just no more reach or penetration into the school system, as you said, because there's just no other doors within it to get in. No, in the health textbook at one of the local schools, I, I kind of paged through it while I was there. It was 25 years old. Yeah, it, it, our young people are, have so many different issues now than what happened 25 years ago. There was nothing about mental health, zero. There were some things about the different organs in your body and, uh, you know, nothing about drugs or alcohol or self-harm or gender confusion or, you know, I mean, it was just like a different world. Yeah. And it was so it was so outdated. It was just, I just felt bad for the kids. Well, you know, it's like I, I listened to this comedian's podcast and he said something so profound and I guess not profound, but it was just the way he worded it. He said, if we don't look at these things in the light, it doesn't mean they're not growing around. I mean, it's like a moss that just grows in the dark. And one day you lift the top off and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know all this mold and moss was in here just because you don't see it. I mean, and that's why, as you said, these things have been here, but we just haven't been talking about them. And so they've been growing around through generationally, really, you know, and now I feel like it's like the lid popped off and people are like, oh, yes, yes, yes. This is all going on. And it's like a kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi says in Star Wars, a thousand voice, a thousand souls cried out at once. It's like that's what we're seeing, I think, right now in the world there are all these different voices going yes we can be heard and we want to be heard finally but the the problem is we are not taking action quickly enough right there are not enough of us putting out resources and making it our life's passion to educate and prevent suicide and depression and really help our youth with their mental health and because we're not moving fast enough People are dying. I mean, we're in an epidemic of teen suicides right now. And this has to stop. Yeah. You know, it's getting out of control and, and nothing is moving fast enough. One thing about your book I liked, too, and I, I will say, and it was that, and that gets right into what you just said. If a teen were to read it, I, if I were a teen and I read it, it would give me hope. I really think it would because you, you present everything as uh, incremental 
you know, some of the stories you were talking about this, it was in the financial part of your book. You were telling the story about a young man who, you know, he went to live on his own or he had a roommate and he was going to do his own bills and he wasn't going to take anything from his parents. And he really quickly found out that he was in a hole, like he was overspending very quickly. But it was like the way that is presented is that his parents didn't go, oh, well, you screwed up, figure it out. They were like, no, okay. Now you get to learn. We're going to help you, but we're going to help you put a plan in place, and it's incremental now. And it was like step by step, he he was able to put money back, and he was able to save. And I think sometimes as a young person, or heck, sometimes even as an adult, you look at something, you look at the whole thing, and you go, I could never carry that from over here to over there. It's just too big. But in pieces, I can, but nobody's telling us it's the pieces. They're like, nope, you got to get over there and get that over here and see you later. (laughs) The focus is on the end result and how you get there is never discussed. It's just get there, you know, figure it out. But that's why with each chapter and each tool, I put a real story of a real young adult that has, has issues in about that chapter. Like if I'm talking about, you know, being mindful. So then there's a story about a young adult who had no idea what that meant. Yeah. And their, their life was out of control. And on, on, and then when they started to implement practices of gratitude and learning what it means to be present, how their life shifted. So as everybody's reading the book, I was hoping through the real stories that I would hit a nerve and that, per, that reader would say, you know what, that's me. Yeah, you know, make it relatable. So then they're going to read on. Okay, so how can I implement that into my life? Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, even as an adult, I was, I was reading the stories and going, oh, I can relate to this. Even if it wasn't the exact same circumstance, there was a comparable situation. You know, even if it wasn't even as extreme, you could still, I could still go, oh, I get this. Yeah, I've been here. I've had yeah, there's- something in my life like this. There's parts of every story that most of us can relate to. Yeah. Very interesting. I, well, I love it. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to try to get my son to read it. <laughs> he, he's graduating this year. And I was like, man, I couldn't, I couldn't sit down and convey all of this to him in, in this organized way. And I love the workbook aspect of it too. So it's one resource. It's something they can work through. Honestly, if a kid took it and treated it like a, a college elective and just did the book, and keep it, you know, keep it and go back to it and look at there. It's a great way to take a snapshot of your life. And what a treasure that would be even 20 years later to go, wow, look, I can see myself right here. Right. That's why I put graphs and charts. I mean, even a sugar log. I have a chapter just on sugar because, you know, we all know to eat from the four food groups. And you've probably told your son, you need to eat more vegetables. And, you you know, they've heard that a million times. So I decided instead of just saying, eat this, don't eat that, I will have a chapter just on sugar because if they start cutting back on sugar, they're going to eat healthier. Because if you're eating healthy and you're still consuming six cans of Coke a day, you're not. (laughs) So I put a sugar log in there so they could actually chart every day what sugary foods and drinks that you've consumed and then add up the teaspoons. So you, that's a real wake up call. Oh, well, you're right. I mean, you think that's a whole nother thing. I mean, that's something we didn't have to deal with was energy drinks. I mean, now they're just like an ocean of energy drinks. And I mean, my teen struggled with it and he will, he's been through bouts of like, when I'm going to quit, but it's a real thing. It's like an addictive thing, you know, withdrawals. And that's a very real. 
Exactly. And nobody looks at sugar as being a harmful addiction. It's an addiction, just like you're addicted to drugs or alcohol. And the energy drinks, you're right. Young adults, a lot of them that I work with are having six or seven a day. Yeah. So I hope to teach them to read the label, write down on that sugar log exactly what you're consuming, and then do the math at the end of the day. Blow and your you, mind. Usually they're absolutely horrified. <laughs> I believe it. Oh, I mean, I, I had someone close to me that was addicted to sugar in a very real way, like sneaking and buying you know, cheap, going to like a dollar store and buying these cheap pineapple two liter bottles and just drinking them in one sitting, which is just sugar water, you know? And it was like an addictive thing. It was a sneaking thing. Like, oh, lying about it. When you start lying about how much you've consumed and you're going, wow, you're, and you know, they know, you know, but they're still doing it. And you're going, you're lying. And I know you're lying. And you know that I know you're lying, but you're still lying. It's weird. And like, that was an addictive thing. I was like, this is something bigger than it's not just, Oh, I like sweets. (laughs) This is went beyond. The reason they're lying is they know it's wrong or they would own up to it. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. One can of soda has 10 teaspoons of sugar. And what happens when you drink that can, you get a little sugar high right away. And then after 20 minutes and an hour, you start to, to crash. So then what do you do? You have another soda because you want to bring that, that sugar rush and your blood sugar back up. And that's why it becomes addictive. And that's why you're having four and five cans of soda and it keeps increasing. So that is such a horrible habit. It wreaks havoc on your teeth, your skin, your arteries, which can lead to heart disease, liver disease. I mean, it's it's destroying your body. So that's why I just focused an entire chapter just on sugar. Yeah, that uh, I was amazed that that was in there. I was again, I was a, a very uh, broad expanse of things that you covered. I was like, wow, she's covering everything that they're going to face. One sooner or later, you're going to come against these different walls. You're going to have to walk through them. You know. Exactly. Yeah. This has been so much fun for me and just healthy and it's got my brain going, which I love. And I hope the people listening to it, it'll get them going. And I hope honestly for the adults listening, they'll get the book, but also get it for a young person. You know, maybe the young person may not go buy it themselves, but get it for them. It's graduation right now. I mean, there's so many people are about to be going off and hey, I mean, going off into college can be a dangerous situation for somebody that isn't prepared mentally, uh, being away from their family and their environment and their safety nets. Well, and what I'm finding too is I'm getting more feedback from parents because they are coming back and saying, I am so glad I read this. I didn't know most of what was in that book and now i'm going to share it with my my child and we're going to go over all of the different points together and and discuss it so Ah. i think it's important for parents to lead by example so if they've read the book i mean they haven't read the book and they're coming home and having you know four sodas and eight glasses of wine they're not setting a good example yeah so maybe it's something that the parents and their kids can actually discuss together i think that see would that be i helpful. like that because you know you could buy a book for i know how that goes somebody bought i mean i'm i'm guilty too because i'm a reader and i've got stacks of books i never read that i buy i mean it just happens yeah and i know that 
you can buy someone a book and go, you should totally read this, especially your teenager. And like, yeah, okay, thanks, Dad, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Never but get if you to... told your son, hey, I got one book for you, and one I've read me. this. But what did you think, son, about her chapter on sugar? You know, what did you think about that being addicting? Do you agree with her? I mean, you can approach it in a way where you are on the same level, and you want to know his opinion of what he thought of that sugar chapter. Yeah, see, I like that. I like, I, you know, it's sad. I hadn't even considered that. Like in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm going to get my son a copy of this book and encourage. But I think the best encouragement, as you said, is participation from the parent with the child. Right. And even if there's something in there that you don't really agree with, bring that up and say, well, what do you think of, of you know, what she said on page 69 about managing your time? Right. Or, or, you know, do you agree with that? Because I had a little trouble with that part or whatever so you're having a conversation you're not saying you need to read this because you need some tools you know when you go off to college yeah because that, then they're not going to take it seriously exactly because i mean how many times do they hear stuff like that i mean truly all day you know empty platitudes i mean people go oh here's this resource and they're like yeah yeah i'll get to it but i like what you're saying i mean i really that's going to help me and i hope that somebody's listening to this will it'll it'll trigger them too and I got to tell you, no, go ahead, please. No, I was going to say, or even in the sleep chapter, I actually tell what happens to your body, you know, 24 hours after lack of sleep, 48 hours. And after 48, well, 24 hours, you um, are actually micro sleeping and 48 hours, you're actually hallucinating and you are the same as being legally drunk. That kind of thing kids can relate to. And it's look, like, oh, you're getting you you're no getting like I, right into that territory again. Where if you have a chemical stimulant in you, a pill, a medication, a drug, whatever it is, and it's diminishing your capacity to really discern what's going on in reality. You're not sleeping, or maybe you're not getting good sleep. I, I get that because I went through that, and that was a recipe for disaster. Because it was like, as you said, I actually was hallucinating. I remember I would have these things where I was like, oh, I was, that wasn't there. This person I thought was there wasn't there or something that happened did not happen. But I was like, but I was awake. You know what I mean? And as you said, everything in your book, when you're in that chapter, I was like, oh, this is all very similar to what I went through when I was on that medication. It was not a good experience. Right. The micro sleeps yeah. where you do fall asleep for a few seconds and you don't even realize it. Yes. And well, those are when you are sleep deprived, that's when you get in those fender benders and you can't find your keys and you're late and you get flustered easily. And if you can trace all of those things to lack of sleep, then you're going to be more motivated to change it. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm so glad that we got connected. I was really eager to talk to you after reading the book, but the conversation was just as dynamic. And I wanted to say this a minute ago, and I want to, I really want to tell you after talking to you and hearing your story uh what a wonderful way to honor your husband's life with what you're doing i mean you you really are taking uh and transforming that tragedy into something that i I just know it's helped somebody i just i just can feel it well that's kind of how i look at it even if one person reaches out and said 
you know what, I, I read your blog or I, I saw you on whatever, this podcast, and you really resonated, your message resonated with me, then it's all worth it. Yeah. You know, you don't know how many people you're going to reach, but one is enough. One is enough. I love that. One is enough. That's beautiful. I'm going to remember that. <laughs> and I'm happy. I know it. Hey there, Good News listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. So look, there is a part of the show, I don't know if you know about it, called Fishing for Goodies. Uh, it's the last part of the show. It's where I stop asking questions, and this fishbowl right here takes over. So it's full of questions. And what I do with the, each guest at the end of the show is I reach in and I pull three questions uh, randomly, and we just see what happens, and we'll talk about them, okay? Okay. Are you game? I guess so. Okay. So let's see. Oh, this is a. I hope this is a good question. We'll see what what we get out of this. What is a regret that you need to let go of? That I didn't do more to help my husband, or that I didn't do the right thing. And had I done the right thing, he'd still be with me. So that's something you're still carrying. You still you're going to carry that. You still feel like you carry that. Not as much. I mean, it's lessened over the years, but you always have those flashbacks of what if. You know how you try to change the outcome in your mind. You know, just like you want you could you in your head after you watch a movie, you change the ending. Yeah. Because you wanted it to end a certain way. Yeah. Still, kind of daydream about that. Like, what if I had taken him and he'd been admitted to the hospital and he'd gotten help? And what if? And what if? And it's not like a burning regret now, um, but it's still there. Yeah, I can imagine that. I, I understand that for other for lots of things with my father, my daughter. And other things, I, I get it. It's like you, you know, you're probably not carrying it like a shroud over yourself, but it's always going to be a part of your timeline. Absolutely. Yeah, I get that. Oddly enough, the second question I pulled is very appropriate for the conversation we had. It says, "Has your project, passion, or work changed you?" Oh, absolutely. I am a completely different person than I was eight years ago. Really? Be before my husband's suicide, we had a successful gym. We were all about business. We were all about making money. We were all, all about life on the beach. We had a vacation home in Rosarito, Mexico. We were living without purpose. We were just living. Just living. We were, we were just existing. 
But we kept busy enough that we didn't realize how purposeless our lives were. And now my life is all about purpose. It's all about education and prevention and mental health and helping people and doing grief counseling and changing lives. So I'm also a lot more empathetic and compassionate. You know, I mean, now when somebody says, I am really grieving the death of of my brother, I... I, I understand how they're feeling. Yeah. I understand what it feels like to be hurt that deeply and to be in pain. Yeah. And so when I talk about what I think they should do, it's coming from the heart. It's not me reciting something out of a book. Right, right. It's it, really it's, livable. You've lived it. You understand it. You went in the cave with them. You get it. Yeah, it's real. And it's coming from a place of I've been there. Mm. And this. And this is what worked for me. So I, I, I just feel like I've, I've changed completely and uh, hopefully for the better. So, okay. So your third question, actually, this is, I've never very, sometimes I get these strange alignments of questions that I pull. So this one says, what's the most surprising self-realization that you've had? Um, I think... I used to think I was resilient to anything. And I've now realized that I don't have the right answer and the right tools all the time. And I'm kind of on a roller coaster of emotions and feelings and it's up and down. And so I and I've realized that that is a natural grief pattern mm. and I'm now I'm accepting of that. Yeah. Um, so I just realized that I'm not, you know, I used to think I was really strong and resilient, but the reason for that is I was never tested. Oh, right. So yeah. I was somebody, but now that I've been through trauma, I feel like I'm somebody else and I've realized there's another side of me and I do have, resilience in a different way um and i think that's true for most people until you've been there you're not going to even know you that you have the capability of coping yeah it's so interesting that you're talking about this i my son loves science right and this is probably going to seem like a strangest segue but he loves science and he loves like home projects and things like that and one, years ago, we looked at, you know, Ublek, this liquid solid mix that you can make at home. And you know what I'm talking about? It's like a. Um, okay, so it's it's a liquid and a solid. And so, like, when you hit it with a great force, like, you can actually run across it, but you can't walk across it. Like, you could literally, if you, the force of your steps will make it so that it actually resists you and it's almost like a solid. But if you just walk slowly across it, it will, you'll sink. And I think that's, a, I used to think that strength was like something hard, you know, that it was this great firm thing. And I wanted to believe it was something that I anchored myself to, you know, and tethered myself to. But I, as I've been through more things and listening to what you just said, I think my strength is more like Ublek. You know, sometimes it takes the shape of a container that it's in and sometimes it's soft and sometimes I sink into it and it is something that 
needs to be touched gently and other times it's firm it it just shifts for the situations it's not this one strong anvil you know just in a granite boulder and i think it's also important to realize that grief is not a one time event you know like i can't say well i have been working through the tragedy of the suicide of my husband. So I'm good now, right? So if I've reached a place where I've accepted it and I'm living with my loss, but I'm back on my feet again, then I'm good to go. And then, you know, my brother dies. And that, you know, so I think, you know, we're all going to experience loss. And unfortunately, it's not a one-time event, So it's important that you have those tools and you are prepared and you understand that life is full of losses and you're going to need those tools over and over again. That's what strength and resilience really is. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, the storms are going to keep coming. Yeah, it's a kit. yes it's a kit it's not it's like a well it's like a medicine bag yeah it's got lots of things in it you know sutures and compresses and balms and oils and tinctures yeah it's not just one thing i like that that's beautiful actually and that's what you're giving people too i mean looking at the list of books you've written and the way you've entered the whole thing and then this new book to me you know, looking at the books that you have written and then this one, it's almost like the tone is it's still in the same category, but it's a different tone. It's like it's a different type of uh, tool. It's it's a whole different take on what I've been through, because now this book is all about let's work on our mental health so that we don't get to the point where you need to know about, you know, the risk factors and warning signs of depression and suicide. Let's Never get there. Yeah, get you know? get this on the front end. Be prepared. Yes. I do have one last question. I ask everybody this at the end of the show. It's my final question. It's my favorite question. Uh, did anything good happen today? Yes. Everything good happened today. Not yesterday, but today. Today. <laughs> yesterday wasn't good. Yes. Um, I just... I have um, gift books that just came out, Returning to Joy, and they're inspirational gift book books for the grieving the loss of your of a loved one, your dog, or your cat. And they're hardcover, four-color, beautiful images and scripture. And so I just stopped in at the, a local church that I know has a gift shop. The pastor was there. He spent an hour with me, read the books, loved him, and now he's they're up in the bookstore. That's fantastic. Wow. That is good news. Yeah, that was just a drive-by, you know, cold call, and they loved it. Oh, I love so it was- when stuff like that happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's a connection that could have just not happened, and you just, you know, you made the effort, you went in, and it happened. I love it. Yeah, Christy, thank you so much. This has been so healthy, I think, and I hope it's healthy for somebody listening. That's what I always hope is that... Uh, it just serves somebody, you know, that this one person, as you said, maybe it's just one person that listens that just, it hits them in the right way. Absolutely. So the name of the book is be you only better real life self care for young adults and everyone else. And I would consider myself one of the, and everyone else crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there a place that you prefer people to connect with your work? 
Yes, all of my books, my blogs, articles, and segments on CBS uh, all can be found on my website at thegriefgirl.com. Excellent. And we'll put a copy of your book on our website, too, and link to it so people can buy get to it and, uh, and to your website as well. Thank you for having me. I'm more thankful every moment that I found. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Christy Hugsat. If you'd like to experience her book, Be You Only Better, visit findthegood.news slash bookshop. If you found something of use in this conversation, please share this episode with a friend, leave a review, or consider visiting findthegood.news slash donate, where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.